All right, let's begin by praying together this morning. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word and for your, um, for your love. Um, we're thankful, Father, um, for the kingdom of your Son. And during this um, Advent season, we um, anticipate and, and ask uh, for uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, certainly on the last day. But we also pray, Father, that he would come and be with us now, um, even this uh, Lord's Day, uh, by his Holy Spirit. We're grateful for that promise that you've given us, um, that um, our Lord Jesus will not leave us comfortless, uh, but will send the Spirit. And we're grateful for um, your presence with us in that way today. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we discuss um, doctrine of sin and that you'd prepare our hearts for worship um, in about an hour from now. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. Um, We are continuing in our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, today we come um, to a, a, um, a title or a, a chapter that is um, uh, titled The Fall of Man, Sin, and Sin's Punishment. Um, really only the first uh, paragraph of this chapter deals with the fall. Um, the rest of the chapter deals with the doctrine of sin um, as we um, teach and believe it um, in our church. Um, Robert Lethem, who is a a commentator um, on the Westminster Standards, his book, The Westminster Assembly, is a wonderful guide um, to this document. He says, chapter 6 is crucial in the confession. That's the chapter we're looking at today. And the corresponding section in the larger catechism is equally important. And we'll look at some of those larger catechism questions this morning as well. He says, as in medicine, where an accurate diagnosis of a patient's condition is needed before effective treatment can be given. So in theology, the diagnosis of man's condition in the sight of God will largely determine the remedy. (coughs) And as you're thinking about um, some of the distinctives of uh, Reformed theology, what it means to be part of um, the the Protestant Reformation Church as it's developed um, within the Calvinist tradition, Um, I would say that that this doctrine of sin is actually one of the most important keystone doctrines of the whole thing. The whole thing um, is really um, connected um, to to the doctrine of sin. And of course, as you think about TULIP, um, the the T for TULIP has to do with this doctrine, total depravity, which we'll um, talk about um, some today. Um, That word isn't used in the confession, but certainly the concept is there. and, and the reason why that's so important is I think that um, as folks disagree about whether or not man is totally depraved by the, their sin and by the fall of mankind, um, if, is that a, you know, or is man only partially depraved? Is there some element of him that can, um, that can choose God, that can do good on his own without the Holy Spirit's uh, work? Um, that makes a great deal of difference in terms of how you work out the rest of the doctrines regarding um, election, regarding justification, sanctification, etc. Um, as, um, as Calvinists, we are monergists. We uh, believe that all the work uh, must be um, on God's part. All the work um, of, of salvation must be completely God's. Um, and that is not only due to his character as um, the sovereign, uh, holy, and powerful one, but also it's connected to who we are as sinners, that we are in ourselves uh, fallen completely and have no hope of 
of change or, or redemption or, or uh, moving towards God in any way apart from um, his work. And so that, that's a, it's, in, in that sense, this is a really um, significant doctrine um, uh, for those of us who are part of the Reformed uh, tradition. Uh, this morning, I want to talk just a little bit about why I think there's a, you know, the, some of the practical benefits of thinking through a doctrine of sin. You know, maybe this isn't the most appealing topic to think about on a Sunday morning. Let's you know, talk about uh, sin. But I think it's actually pretty important in a lot of ways. And um, I want to give you the story um, as a way of illustrating um, uh, the, uh, this doctrine. In the early 1900s, I have here in your handout, the Times of London sent a query to several famous authors. And it's not, I can't absolutely guarantee this story is true. Um, I look for documentation of it. Um, but it's been told enough that whether it's true or not, I think the point uh, works either way. But the story goes, in the early 1900s, the Times of London sent a query to several famous authors, including G.K. Chesterton, asking them to respond to the question, what is wrong with the world today? Um, the Times, of course, in London is, um, you know, like the New York Times in our uh, culture, a, a place of ideas and um, not necessarily a Christian uh, publication at all. Um, so they were looking for diagnosis and, you know, ideas presumably about how the world ought to be changed from prominent thinkers. And so Jesterton uh, responded very briefly, uh, tersely, Dear Sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Um, and I love that. I love that quote. I love that um, posture um, from Chesterton um, because it, it illuminates, I think, someone who's taking seriously the doctrine of sin, which is to say, uh, what's wrong with the world? Oh, it's, it's me, right? It's, I'm actually the problem um, in the world. And I, I think that's one of the things that um, a well-developed doctrine of sin really um, can do for us, is it can um, help us to answer questions like that uh, with responses like Chesterton had. Um, there's so much, right, as you think about the debates that happen on um, cable television um, every uh, day of the week in the newspapers in our society, on the you know, various social media platforms out there. You know, and very, very much what is being debated is this question, right? What is wrong with the world today and what can be done uh, to fix it? And people have lots of ideas both about what is wrong and what needs to change in order for the world to be a better place. Um, but I think as Christians, if we take seriously the doctrine of sin, it frees us to answer in a way that Chesterton did, to say, fundamentally, what's wrong with the world is me, um, is my fallen sinful nature and the indwelling um, that continues um, of sin in my life. And, um, and, and I, there's a humility there, there's a freedom there, I think, that comes um, from a proper understanding of sin. Um, and and it, so it gives us a kind of, yeah, a kind of humble posture um, towards God and also towards others, um, which is something that I think that the Lord uh, really sees as precious and good. Um, those who humble themselves will be exalted, um, the scriptures tell us, um, the Apostle James says. Um, so we should start with this idea of sin as being something that includes us in a very deeply fundamental way. Um, another benefit of a well-developed doctrine of sin is that it gives us an understanding of what is wrong with the world, uh, a wise understanding of the true cause of suffering, difficulty, pain, and death. Um, this is a question that, that haunts people, right? Why is life so hard? Uh, why do I feel 
like a mess all the time. Um, why um, is uh, my work difficult? Um, why is it hard to um, continue in my marriage in ways that will be uh, good for me? Why is it difficult to raise my children? Um, why is it um, hard um, to um, engage in a relationships with others? There's so much misunderstanding and confusion. Um, and then you get to bigger questions like, why do I have cancer? Or why um, did my mother die? Um, or whatever it might be. Um, you know, why did this terrible event happen in my childhood? And, and the answer to all those questions is sin. That's the reason. That's the reason why your work is difficult. That's the reason why your marriage has challenges. That's the reason why um, your children struggle. That's the reason why uh, people get cancer. Um, it's the reason why people die. It's the reason why terrible things happen to people in their childhood. All of it is because of sin, because of human uh, sin, um, both um, sins that, um, uh, that we commit against one another, um, sins that that we ourselves are complicit in um, and the choices that we make that actually hurt us and make our lives hard. Um, and then sin in the sense that death is a part of our existence and reality um, that, that um, so to the very extent that our bodies themselves are dying um, even as we speak or we are in the process of moving towards um, death. Um, we don't know how that will come, but it will come. And the reason for all of those things is, we believe, according to the scriptures, um, sin. Um, first, sin of Adam and Eve, and then um, all the sin that has uh, followed in their wake. Um, a third, um, though, uh, benefit, I think, of a well-developed doctrine of sin is a profound gratitude to God um, for his forgiveness, the forgiveness that he gives us in Jesus Christ. Um, you know, I say this sometimes, um, on Sunday mornings when I'm declaring the forgiveness of your sin in the liturgy, I say, this is the best news you could have. And it really is. The best news that you could have is that your sins are forgiven, that you will not pay the consequence or the price or penalty of your sin, um, that God and his son um, has um, delivered you um, from the power of sin. Um, that is... Uh, the best possible news um, you, could, uh, you could have. Um, and so I think a right understanding of sin and its power and its horror um, gives us a kind of humble and grateful posture towards God, that God has actually uh, delivered us um, from um, this um, terrible, terrible thing that we are plagued by. And in addition, it gives us a longing for him to take away um, all sin everywhere, um, to take away all the consequences that flow uh, from sin, um, especially death, but all other consequences as well in terms of suffering and pain and grief and all of those things. And that, of course, is what we long for when we say, come, Lord Jesus. We are saying, come and take away sin. Come and end sin's reign, sin's power um, in the world and in my life. And that's, of course, what we're doing in the Advent season particularly is um, saying, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and rescue us uh, from um, this world of sin. Any thoughts or questions about anything I've just said before we jump into what the confession has to say on this topic? Anybody? Yeah, Eric.
Right, not because he sinned or his parents sinned, but for God's glory. Yeah, they're, yeah. Yeah. So, so Eric is asking, what about stories like Job, where Job appears to be innocent of any particular sin that, that resulted in the suffering that he experienced, or the story of the blind man in John 9, who Jesus says wasn't blind because of his sin or his parents' sin, but because of God's, um, so that God would be glorified in his healing. Um, and so, yeah, I, would, I don't think what I'm saying is incompatible from an understanding of God's providence. Certainly, in terms of the actual um, events of those men's lives, um, those were providential occurrences that happened because of God's sovereign uh, will and desire um, for them. Uh, but stepping back, we can certainly say <laughs> none of those things would have been part of their experience apart from sin, apart from Adam's sin, apart from um, just generally the, the fall that took place and, and the way that death came into the world. And so um, it, what I'm saying, when I say the cause of your suffering, friends, is sin, I'm not necessarily saying, you know, that cancer that you have now is because, you know, you did this terrible thing, uh, this heinous thing, and now God is punishing you. Now, we certainly should be open to the possibility that God could give us cancer because he wants to discipline us, and certainly Hebrews 12 um, speaks of that, I think, we, but, uh, but I certainly wouldn't. I'd be very cautious about connecting, you know, your particular form of suffering to uh, the sin in your life, um, but certainly we can still affirm completely and wholly I would not be suffering in the way that I am if I were not a sinner and if I were not in a world that is um, uh, completely plagued by sin. So that, that's what I would say. Okay, let me, real quick, let me see if Eric's got a follow-up and then we'll keep moving, hopefully. Yes, sir. It is interesting to think about, I, and I don't know that we can, of course, answer those, well, we can't answer those questions with any, because the scriptures don't tell us about that, you know, second path or that first path that, um, you know, the Adam and Eve may have walked on but didn't. Um, I, I understand the point you're getting at, that there are some forms of what we might describe as suffering or pain um, or even death that are redemptive and you know we grow through them and those kinds of things and yeah I, I don't know answer that question completely I'll that's more of a I'd, I'd probably say more in the privacy of my office than I would on a recording <laughs> about that question um, I think James had his hand up
Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I very much think that the sin that we should be most concerned about is our own. Um, and I know that's, and whether that's in contrast to the general sort of sinfulness of the world around us or the particular people in our lives who are themselves sinners and maybe have sinned against us, I'm still, at the end of the day, the sin that I should be most, most concerned about is my own. Um, I don't, you know, I know my own heart. I don't know the hearts of other people, um, but I know my sin. And, um, and that, that's, yeah, I think it's important for us to be focused on that. Certainly, I think the saints would want us to be focused on um, our own hearts. Certainly, the Apostle Paul would want that, I think. Uh, did you have something, Jeremy? Yes. No. We, but I, I would say, though, that I think the scriptures certainly boldly declare the specific consequence of sin and punishment in people's lives more than we are as modern Christians comfortable with. Hezekiah suffered a specific consequence because of his sin in dealing with Egypt uh, when Babylon. Um, you know, the Herod, the king in Acts 12, immediately is struck down by God uh, because of the way that he... Um, do you know what I mean? Like there are... This judgment in 70 AD <laughs> comes on Jerusalem because of the way that they treated Christ and his bride. I mean, they're just... So I understand what you're saying, but I do also want to say, like, God does punish people for their sins in this life. Um, and we... I, I, we do need to be careful, but we also don't want to just... Yeah, we need to hold both those things in tension. One more, and then we really got to move on to the confession. Yeah, I do that. Sure. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, James 5 does that. And it's a, it isn't, there's some, I mean, yeah, we don't want to blow past. There is a link. There is a link. There's always a link, friends, 
between the sin in your life and the suffering that you've experienced. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, God is doing this to you because of this X. What I am saying, I think a, a right, wise posture towards God says, search me and know me, O God, um, that I might know, that I might know where I can repent, that I might know where I can turn. And yeah, that is a really fascinating thing in, in James, James 5, when the elders are to go and anoint someone who is sick, first they are to say, um, ask them if they have any sins to confess. And he says, confess your sins and you'll be healed, right? Um, not, not just forgiven, but also healed, uh, which is an interesting uh, thing to think about. All right, let's, uh, let's look at uh, some of what the confession says here. I've got it printed for you. This is chapter 6. Um, Paragraph one, our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, send and eating the forbidden fruit. Uh, this is a story that we're all familiar with, I'm sure, in Genesis 3. This their sin, God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. Um, of course, in the Genesis account, Satan is not named. There's only the serpent, but we rightly believe that the serpent was in some uh, f either Satan in serpent form or serpent under Satan's control or somehow Satan was the active agent there um, from other parts of the scriptures that, that teach that. Um, they send and of course breaking God's uh, law um, when he said do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, the confession says that God uh, was pleased, according to his holy and wise counsel, to permit this sin, having purpose to order it to his own glory. We know from the previous chapter that on God's providence that <clears throat> the first sin of man and all sin that takes place in the world today um, is not mere permission on God's part, um, but something that he actually governs and orders as part of his eternal decree. So I won't belabor that point. We've talked about God's eternal decree a lot so far, but uh, we want to, we want to, um, we do believe that God was sovereign over the sin of Adam and Eve, the fall of humanity, while also um, he's not responsible for sin itself or the author of sin. Uh, by this sin, they fell, and there'll be more about freedom of the will and how that works out in later chapters as well. By this sin, they, that is Adam and Eve, and it's uh, significant to note here that they, the confession and and there's more emphasis on Adam in the larger catechism, as we'll see. But here in the confession, the emphasis is not only on Adam, but on Adam and Eve together um, as our first parents. They fell, not just Adam fell, but they fell um, from their original righteousness and communion with God. And so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So what we believe um, as um, uh, in our church, at least, um, in the Calvinist tradition, is that um, sin has so corrupted us that we are wholly defiled. We are, um, we are, um, the taint of sin is comprehensive. Um, it is in every part of our body and every part of our mind and our soul. Um, uh, all of our thinking is corrupted by sin, etc. Um, man in his fallen state. Now, it's important, and this is what's known, of course, as the doctrine of total depravity. Um, it's important to say that the doctrine of total depravity does not mean um, that all human beings are as wicked and awful as they might be. Um, 
uh, as they could be, that they're so corrupted by sin that they can't ever do anything but sin. That's not, and sometimes Calvinism gives a bad rap for that. Um, you know, we're, 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 I'm, I'm not saying, don't hear me say that you're, you know, all, all your life is nothing but sin, 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 sin. Um, or, or for that matter, that no one anywhere outside of the church ever does anything that is not sin. Um, now, we actually believe that the sin and wickedness is, with, is held back by God, um, that there is uh, uh, something called common grace, uh, grace which is given to everyone everywhere um, by which the Lord um, holds back the reign of sin, holds back. Um, and you might look at the world sometimes and say, is God really holding anything back? Right? <laughs> I mean, think about some of the um, horrors of our world. But I would say, yes, absolutely. The Lord is restraining human sin um, comprehensively on a global scale as well as in individual people's lives. But as a Calvinist, what I, so as a Calvinist, though, what I'm saying is people aren't as bad as they might be, not because people are somehow partly good, but because God in his grace, not, not necessarily his saving grace, but in his common grace, is restraining human wickedness and sin. And so we, we want to say that, that the Spirit um, operates um, even in ways in the world that don't have, you know, specifically to do with the salvation um, uh, from our sins. He also holds back uh, human wickedness. Uh, chapter or Paragraph three, they, again, they, meaning Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. That word imputed, um, uh, more sort of modern uh, way of saying that would be when maybe be reckoned or counted to, um, assigned to. Um, imputed is the word historically that's been used theologically. The guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed. So guilt is imputed, death and corrupt nature is conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Of course, ordinary generation is meant to exclude. Um, there are three people who were not um, born by ordinary generation in the world history, right? Adam and Eve being the first two, and then our Lord Jesus Christ being the third. Um, so they're excluding, uh, in some way, Jesus from this um, imputation of guilt and sin. Um, he took upon those things voluntarily, not because um, he was obligated to in the same way that we are. Um, and so the, the picture that the confession uses here is that Adam and Eve are a kind of root um, that all of us um, who follow after them, all of their posterity, um, are growing out of. The root is corrupt, and so all the branches um, also bear the same corruption, uh, the same um, tendency towards sin and death um, that Adam and Eve fell into. That's the idea there. Um, the larger catechism gives us another uh, picture, um, um, not just um, that um, they are the root of all mankind, but um, but question 22 um, um, asks, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? And answers, the covenant, and we're actually going to read about the covenant next week in um, the seventh chapter, um, the covenant being made with Adam, that's the covenant in the garden, as a public person. So here, um, the larger catechism is emphasizing what we might describe as federal theology, the idea that um, that that. Uh, human beings have a head, and through that one person, everything that happens to him affects everyone else. 
Um, so they're saying that Adam, here the larger catechism isolates Adam for that role. And of course the reason they do this scripturally is if you read Romans 5, Paul makes exactly the same comparison that in Adam all sinned, in Christ all are made alive. Um, there's this transfer. So Adam, we believe, um, the covenant being made with Adam as a public person, uh, so as the covenant head, so to speak, of the human race, not for himself only, but for his posterity. All mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him. So in some sense, we were in Adam when he sinned, and we were in his loins, so to speak, as um, the writer to Hebrews talks about Levi being in the loins um, 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 of Abraham. Um, we sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression, in that first sin. So the larger catechism, I think, here helpfully expands the teaching of the confession, gives us uh, more of this concept of um, federal uh, theology where, or covenant theology, where we have, and, and there'll be more of that in the confession itself in the next chapter, where Adam is acting on the, on the, in the stead, and basically, of the entire human race. And when he sins, we all sin with him. Uh, then paragraph four, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite um, to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Um, so this um, chapter, the confession continues to build on the doctrine of uh, what we would call total depravity, what it means that sinners... Uh, those who are in Adam are totally depraved. It means that we are utterly indisposed. So we don't, we don't want to be anything other than what we are in terms of sin. We're completely disabled. We have no power um, to free ourselves from sin, uh, from the reign of sin, and made opposite to all good. So in our fallen state, um, if there is something good and holy, um, our desires are actually against that. Um, not what we prefer naturally. Uh, what we prefer is the, the opposite of it. And wholly inclined to all evil. And you see there the, um, the quotation from Genesis 6. We preached on that uh, passage um, earlier this year. And um, Genesis 6 remains the case, right? It remains that um, there there may be, we could argue that, you know, potential and theologians have that there's a kind of covenant of grace that comes in, uh, common grace um, in the Noahic covenant that restrains human wickedness more than um, what was previous um, to the flood. Uh, but still, the problem is the same, right? The problem is the same. Um, all human beings um, are fundamentally um, inclined to evil. And of course, we could talk about um, Paul's teaching of Romans 3 and his quotation of um, Psalm 14, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are a lot of places we could go um, to think about this doctrine uh, from the scripture's perspective. And from all of this fallenness, all of this corruption, um, that is where all actual transgressions come from. All our sin that we actually commit uh, comes from this fundamental problem that we have vis-a-vis -vis sin. Paragraph 5 on the back page. This corruption of nature during this life, so during our earthly life, the corruption that we've inherited, speak, from Adam and Eve, doth remain, does remain, 
and those that are regenerated. And this is one of the mysteries of our faith, right? That we believe um, as Christians, as Reformed Christians, um, but generally Christians believe this, that uh, though the Spirit regenerates us and makes us alive, we're no longer dead in our sin in the same way that we were previously after the Spirit does His work um, in us, still the corruption of our nature remains in us in this life. It is not wholly taken away. Um, it still remains in our nature. Um, and, and this isn't to say we have like now two different nature. No, we're, we still have one nature, but our nature is not entirely comprehensively uh, freed from corruption. Um, within our nature, there still are remnants of that original corruption. And although it through Christ be pardoned and mortified, justification, sanctification, right, forgiven of our sin, forgiven even in some sense of our sin nature, and we're being mortified, we're putting those things to death through the Spirit, through our union with Christ, yet both itself, that is the corruption of our nature, and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. All the motions thereof means everything that flows out of that original corruption of our nature. <clears throat> so not only you know, the actual sins that, com that I commit, but my desire to sin as part of the motions of my sin, right? Um, so the, you know, I don't just sin by doing bad things with my body. I sin by even the movements of my heart that are toward things that are against God's law, that are against us. This is um, a, a different uh, understanding of sin than the Roman Catholic Church has with its doctrine of concupiscence. Uh, which argues that the inclination to sin is not sin itself. It's only when you begin to steward that inclination and, and, and consider it and act on it that it becomes sin. So we don't, as Reformed Christians, believe that. We believe all um, the motions that come from our corruption um, are sin themselves, properly sin. Um, every sin then, um, six both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary on two, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death, with all miseries spiritual, temporal, and eternal. So all matters, misery spiritual um, in relationship to God, temporal that we experience in time, in this life, and eternal, all that we experience in the life to come. Um, this is partly why I was trying to answer that question earlier about, you know, what is wrong in the world? What is the cause of your suffering? It's sin. This, that's what we believe. We believe that um, all of um, the things that we experience in this life that are um, against us, that are bad for us, um, are because of sin. Um, what misery, the larger catechism asks, did the fall bring upon mankind? The fall brought upon mankind the loss of communion with God. You see that clearly in Genesis 3. His displeasure and curse, again Genesis 3. So as we are now by nature children of wrath, bond slaves to Satan, Jesus himself says this in John 8. when He's speaking um, to the um, Jewish leaders, says they're sons of Satan, children of Satan. And justly liable to all punishments in this world and that which is to come justly liable is such an important phrase here. Um, as we think about suffering and the reasons for suffering, an innocent person in this world has only died once. 
Only once has an innocent person died. Um, I don't care if you're talking about children that die in the womb or little babies that have cancer or someone who lived a nice, long, full life and made it to 95 and went the easiest way possible. An innocent, only once has an innocent person ever died. Um, that's what we believe, according to this doctrine of original sin. Um, all of us um, live under God's just sentence of death. And I think that's something to really rec- wrestle with as you think about what does it mean to relate to God in the context of suffering in this world, um, that all of us are justly liable um, to all punishments in this world and the next. Um, 28, the punishments of sin in this world, um, so in this life, are either inward, as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, reprobate like unprincipled, strong delusions, right, delusions of grandeur, we might say, and other delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections. So the ways that people are tormented by their sin, that's actually part of the punishment of sin, um, according um, to our confession. Or outward as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sake. So all creation groans, as Romans 8 says, all creation groans for redemption. All creation was impacted by the sin of humanity. And all other evils that befall us in our bodies, cancer, sickness, disability, etc. Names, estates, relations, right? And how we relate to other people. And employments, you know, our work, our labor, together with death itself. And then finally, 29, what are the punishments of sin in the world to come? Um, And this is a doctrine that we clearly teach and believe, the doctrine of hell. The punishments of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. Um, That is a difficult doctrine, it's a difficult doctrine for me, candidly, but it's what we believe, it's what we teach, what we think the scriptures teach. All right, I'm going to stop there so we can learn a hymn. Let me, um, let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that you would be gracious to us um, as we reflect upon these things, grant us sobriety of mind as we consider um, sin and its impact in our lives and the lives of others. Uh, grant us, Father, uh, your mercy and grace. And Father, we pray that you would entirely and completely deliver us from all sin and all sin's punishments. And we know that you will do this through your Son on the last day. And so we say, come soon, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.